Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatik, sitting here with Aaron Cameron at day two of the Toronto Real Estate Forum. This is part of our speaker video series. I want to thank our sponsors, Dow Vukovic, ML Emporio Properties, and Turner and Townsend. Uh, we have a returning guest, Sherry Larjani. We just verified. She came mm-hmm. on about a year and a half ago, which in the current climate is long enough for a lot of things to change. I mean, these are, uh, if nothing else, rapid times. Sherry, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me again. So last time Sherry came on, and we will put the show link in the uh, show notes if anybody wants to go back and listen to it. It's a pretty interesting origin story for how Sherry got into real estate. Thanks to her father-in-law. That's all I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shout out. No thanks to my uh, father-in-law, yeah. I think a pink hard hat was uh, <laughs> something else I remember. <laughs> oh, and kicking ass. Yeah, there's a lot of ass kicking going on, yeah. on that part. <laughs> We're going to revisit affordability. I mean, it's not like that problem was solved in the last uh, 18 months. It's gotten worse, if anything. Yes, yeah, there's there's data to support that theory. Uh, but just for anybody who's not going to listen to the whole episode, maybe just you can do the, you know, the abridged version of kind of who you are and, and uh, what Spotlight does just to set the stage. And then we'll jump into... Uh, finally solving the affordability crisis right here on the podcast today. Okay, uh, good. Can't wait for that. So yes, as you said, I'm, I'm the president of Spotlight Development. It's a development firm in, in Toronto, which primarily does work in the GTA. And we I started doing for-profit only. So we, st- you know, we started the company with doing for-profit projects and, you know, growing it from a small little subdivision to, um, you know, condo projects and currently a 60-story at a corner of Queen and Church in partnership with Santa Court, which is, you know, the tallest uh, of the projects that we have on the go. But in the last uh, three years, what we have done, three and a half years to be exact, we've, what we've done is we've started looking at how we can figure out the solution to afford housing crisis and the solution for us was to do it at scale and the only way we could have tackled it in our opinion is not to celebrate 30 20 30, 50 units here and there it is actually go for scale and also bring speed so with those two combinations in mind you can actually tackle the affordable housing crisis so we're done solved it <laughs> <laughs> but that's the idea and that's the that's the mission and the goal that we have on the non-for-profit arm of our, our company and we created partnerships so that we can establish a model where it can grow and also where we don't need to um, sort of get ourselves familiar with everything that we don't know so that we can sort of tap into the expertise of the people around the table that already have it and then work with it and, and, you know, hopefully do it faster. Let's start with um, sort of macro perspective and kind of work in. So how many projects, how many units, what's what's going on right now in in your world? So... I'm going to say about 10,000 units on the go for the affordable housing component of our of our company. The for-profit, I honestly don't have the exact numbers in mind right now, but uh, for the non-for-profit, which is the biggest focus of our company right now, is about 10,000 units. And they are in different locations. You know, we didn't stick to Toronto only. And I think the reason we did that was obviously because we were able to find land in other places that were better priced. I don't want to say cheaper, but better priced and worked better with the performers that we were putting together, but also because we wanted to work with different municipalities so that we are um, at least giving ourselves, um, you know, some opportunities to explore other municipalities and see how they, they will do things differently. And I think we've proven that municipalities matter. And, you know, projects uh, do go ahead when you have uh, good municipalities behind you and working with you. What stage are you at with those 10,000? 
in Q3 of next year, we're starting construction on our 2 million square feet in Kitchener-Waterloo. We're starting with, with the first two towers, which is about a million square feet in Kitchener. And then I know when I was here last, I talked to you guys about our Lawrence and Black Creek project. Very excited. 2,400 units in the heart of Toronto, bringing all the services. I'm still exactly where I was a year and a half ago, two years ago when it, I sat It had a here. lot of moving parts, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah. We are still exactly where we were. And I think I'm either the luckiest or the unluckiest person in the world because I don't think anyone can come and say, during the time I was working on this project, I had a mayor change on me, a minister of housing federal, a minister of housing provincial changed on me. And I think because our project is government dependent, it affected us. Like many people can say, oh, well, okay, well, it doesn't matter who comes into power. But for us, it mattered because they were also helping us push the project through. And then we had all these delays. And not to say that it wasn't, partly on the municipality, but it's just, you know, we're still there. But what happened since, since we went and we uh, purchased a property in Kitchener-Waterloo, and it's for 2 million square feet, as I mentioned, transit-oriented, and we had amazing support from the municipality and the region of Waterloo, which was surprisingly interesting. And, you know, uh, I want to go back and I want to do more in Kitchener-Waterloo, to be very honest with you. Same as Brampton. Like, we're working on a project in Brampton. Again, the mayor, the staff there are, you know, even though it's the beginning stages of it, they're, they're problem-solving with us, which is interesting, you know, to see the mayor of, of Brampton being so eager to actually bring more housing and to ask us what he can do is is phenomenal. Refreshing. Completely refreshing. Although I can tell you that I got the same reception in Kitchener-Waterloo as I got in Brampton. And I think we're now exploring some options in Barrie as well. Again, the same sort of reception. It's brand new, but just during this recent fall economic update, uh, the federal government announced sort of incentive funding program for municipalities to deliver faster projects to change zoning. Is that got you excited or is that, do you think that'll have a material impact? If I'm going to be honest and if I don't get myself in trouble, as I usually do, none of these excite me because the fact that they announce it is one thing. Implementing it and actually making it available for people like us to use it is another story. So, you know, there are so many programs since that the last time we talked that just came into the part of the legislation or announcements and things like that. We haven't seen the effect of it yet. So, yes, I'm excited to see them actually help us. DHST waiver on apartments? That definitely helps. But I tell you, the cost of constructions are still something that the only thing that that did is made it so much easier for us to accept that increase in the cost of construction and for us to say, oh, okay, well, this is going to take some of that away, right? And I'm hearing that there's a forecast that the construction costs are supposed to go down. And it's very interesting that I haven't, I'm yet to see that to actually show up in our performance, right? So I think when that shows up, and the HSC and, and all the, you know, new sort of things that are coming, especially, you know, the, for, for building um, apartments, that, then I will celebrate them. Because at this point, they still haven't penciled out the way we want them to pencil out, at least in our projects, especially in the affordable housing world. I'm not talking about the market rentals because the market rental, the rents have gone up in such a crazy fashion that you can't compare them to the affordable housing where you're stuck to certain numbers and certain rents that you can offer. So that's a difficulty we're having with the rental units that we're doing in our uh, affordable housing projects. 
Define what, affordable. Let's just yeah, go there That's first. a good question because there's 17 um, different. My version of it or every different municipality's version of yeah. it. Let's just start with yours and then maybe, uh, oh, maybe contradict. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, I tell you, I think affordability now literally should be taken out of the conversation because it's not even a matter of affordability anymore. It's a matter of having housing available. So I think we should be looking at housing and not affordable housing. It's just a lot completely twisted wrong way of looking at it, especially because nobody actually has a definition for it. If I were to go by the book and say, oh, okay, uh, is it geared towards income affordability or is it 80% AMR affordability or is it that I'm going to go 60% below AM, like AMR because it's indigenous housing? Like, what am I looking at? Which which one of it is, is it that I'm looking at? Am I doing ownership? If I'm doing ownership, which model am I doing? Whose model, uh, you know, there's so many players in the affordable ownership world. Like, who am I following? And attainable housing, which is a new term that we used a lot and recently has, um, we've been hearing from the government as well. What is really attainable housing. The definitions that they're providing as a guideline for us to start talking about it are going to be impossible for us to deliver. It's 90% below the market. We're doing 90% below market, but believe me, even with 90% below market on ownership models, we still can't do it. It's still not affordable. So I think the definitions, they don't mean anything. I don't think anybody should pay attention to what the definition is. We should just bring in every partner that does their own model based on what they think affordability is. And, you know, like we're doing partner with them bring them into one project and call it an affordable housing project just because they're all coming in and bringing in their participants that are waiting on these long lists whether it's rental whether it's ownership whatever the case is whether it is supportive housing like what is the definition for affordable supportive housing how do you define that it's just so complicated and i think putting one definition for affordable housing just messes everything up and i think that's not the way it should be done so for us, we define affordable housing by providing tools for people to be able to get into the market, whether it is rental or ownership. And that's how we define it. How's the um, not-for-profit structure work? So the non-for-profit arm of our company is run by members and board, where they are partly from the industry, people that we know can have an effect on, on the actual crisis of affordable housing and experts that we know in the industry, as well as all of the non-for-profits that we partner with. So we ask for their participation into the non-for-profit that we have created. But what and how that non-for-profit actually manages to do the work that they do is in partnerships that are done in silos with every one of the non-for-profits separately based on their terms that works for them and based on the number of units they can deliver, based on the needs for every group. And those agreements are done with the non-for-profit and that's how we kind of structure it and make it work. What's the biggest barrier to delivering affordable by any definition product into the market? So, you know what? I get this question a lot. And my answer to you is it's not one thing that's the biggest barrier. But I can put five things together and tell you if all of these are resolved, then we have a solution. I was speaking at, uh, and again, my after the event, uh, the, after I spoke, my my one of my staff was like, "I was just hoping you wouldn't go further from that, and that like, gets yourself in trouble." But I say, get all three levels of government into a room, close the door on them until they figure out how to tackle this in alignment, and then get them out. 
because this is not going to get resolved without the municipality, the entitlement process, the fact that we have to wait for everything to happen, the fact that everybody's doing the blame game when there are things that new tools that are given to the not-for-profits, such as Bill 23, where it says, hey, DC exemption, and you go to municipalities and the municipalities are like, um, how do you exactly want me to give this to you when I have to spend money on roads and infrastructure and this and that? You know, that's not been resolved. And then how do you go to CMAC and say, hey, I need funding for these projects when they say, yes, they have all of these new things that they bring to the conversation. But for my project, I got to go through five different programs through CMAC to be able to get funding for one project. Every single one of them takes nine months. Imagine doing five of them. You know, God help anyone who's looking at these pay paperwork. So streamlining the process, whether it is through the federal, provincial, or municipal government, as well as for all of them to come up with a solution that this streamlining isn't happening only at the municipality, but it's it goes further beyond that and it gets streamlined all the way through so that every one of them knows exactly what their responsibilities are and they can actually do something about it. That's one of the biggest things that we're advocating for these days, saying, hey guys come together do something because otherwise everybody can come up with their own solution is it effective not on its own it needs other things do you find it's like herding cats yes it's a crazy situation because you even heard mayor chow came up with this plan where she wanted to take on the role of the developer and actually build this but then she came out and she said I'm not going to be able to do this without funding from the provincial government and the federal government and the non-for-profit sector and the private sector okay we're all speaking the same language. It's all about getting everyone together. So a municipality alone can't do it. A provincial government cannot enforce everything and just make things happen. It has to all come together for all of this to work. I mean, to your point, it's like herding cats. Once you get all the cats in the barn, then they change. And then off you get a new one. Yes. But let's wait for that to happen. And contradictory policies and uh, all of it just makes your head spin. Well, I love, you know, we've got this new HST waiver and other provinces are following. See, I think Vancouver and Ontario are... BC and Ontario have followed, and then the conservative leaders are saying we would we would scrap it immediately. It's like, okay, yeah. awesome, thanks. Yeah. Looking forward to that, right? Exactly, so, yeah. exactly. Especially when development timelines are likely to span multiple governments. You know, it's you can't get in the ground fast enough, you can't build fast enough, you can't complete fast enough. You know what? It's interesting that you bring that up because I was debating with my one of my our consultants, who's our planning consultant. And, you know, we were arguing over something that we wanted to do. And I was like, okay, well, you know what? They have 120 days to give us a response or they have to give us the money back. And he started laughing. I said, why are you laughing? He said, it's going to take you six months to go pre through pre-consultation to get your application in. So they really have nine months. So they actually now have found a way to delay and not work with the structure and the, and the mandate that they've been given. That you have 90 days to respond to an application or you have to give the money back. Now. The process before your application is accepted as complete is now six months. So it's the same wait time. Nothing really changes. Meanwhile, you're sitting on a uh, land loan at Prime plus two. You're sitting on a land loan that the Prime kept on going up and up and up. Look at us in the last year and a half. And, you know, I tell everyone, I said, we as developers are hurting from every side because it's not only that we can't figure out how to pay for the increasing cost of the land loans that we're sitting on, but also we can't get the buyers to come and buy because everybody's now running away saying, oh, I'm going to wait till the market like sort of gets better or their interest rates drop. So we're like literally somewhere in between getting sandwiched between two like really difficult uh, sort of groups, which is, you know, the lenders on the the land side as well as the buyers on the other side or in the commercial lenders that, uh, sorry, the residential lenders that would give 
you know, lending to these people to come and buy our units. Like, I, see, I think it's just a really bad timing for our industry. So unless something really happens, forget about affordable house. No, no housing yeah. is going to happen. And yeah, $5 per square foot of rents can barely, you know, make a feasible pro forma in the city of Toronto right now. Exactly. We've had two different economists here at the forum on both days. Both have said rates are going down by a couple hundred basis points in 2024. So there's a little bit of hope. There is hope. But, you know, we all have to sort of drag ourselves up until that time that we see that happening. I'm hearing that by the end of 2025, we're going to get to 3% and then maybe lower by the year after or many different variations of this. But we still have to carry all of these assets. You're hearing so many crazy things on the news these days about what's happening to developers projects that are stopping now. Imagine what's happening a year and a half from now when many more projects are coming to a time where they need to start selling them. And it's just going to be, there has to be some message of control that we put into the way we're doing it. And I think it's just going to, we're not thinking about it, but I think there's going to be, the, the demand will be there, but the supply will be so much that it will still create that sort of problem for all of us. Do you think, there's, do you think there's more challenges to come? I mean, of course, we've got Van Dyke that was out in the news. Yeah. I mean, the one, which I think is a little bit different, that, that's been kind of, you know, unfortunately, even kind of meandering towards a receivership for a while. That's, that's the Mizrahi project up on at Bloor & Young. Are there, is there more, do you think, to come just because of the fact that there's been such long runways to get shovels in the ground. The, the buyers on the condo sides aren't there. Land loans, are, prices have gone up. So there's a lot of carry costs. I think there will be small things that you can hear about um, here and there. But I think all in all, the development industry is going to keep itself survive and survive. Um, I think the people who are running most of these um, companies are Many of them have gone through this once before, so it's sort of like they're always waiting for it and they're always keeping an eye out so that if something like this happened, how they're going to prevent it. Like there will be people like me who haven't gone through that as part of their business and this is the first time they're facing it. And yes, we will run into a trouble here and trouble there, but we will manage to pick ourselves back up and, and keep running with it if we really mean to stay in this business. Um, so I think I don't like for that to be the way we look at the industry and the way that we see it moving forward. I think uh, the development industry is pretty pretty strong. And I think they can pretty much hold hold themselves up until we get those. Uh, yeah, well, like, that's the um, hope. I mean, you, that, uh, unfortunately, the Van Dyke scenario, you know, really, there's been a couple more in the you know, out west. It's only a couple. But to your point, if, if it continues, there's just that fewer developers, that much more. Because once it loans go into receivership or once files go into receivership, it's not a quick turnaround before someone steps in and continues to build. Those cool. units, Those units are off the market for... A long period of time. Well, and it just scares away new capital from going into projects as well. If people are not currently invested, puts them on the wait and see mode for a little bit. I think they have been in that mode for a very long time already, which is one of the troubles, right? Like, you know, we are running into that as well. Like we have, a, we are seeing a lot of um, lenders taking their time issuing papers and actually bringing funding into the projects, which is delaying a lot of um, the financings that we are trying to do, which ultimately gets us in a trouble here and there, as I mentioned. So it's not that it has not been happening and this is going to start to happen. And people have been sort of saying, we're pencils down, we're pencils down, we're pencils. We've been hearing this for a pretty long time, right? That, you know, oh, no, we're pencils down. Uh, you know, I think people need to pick up those pencils and start looking and underwriting the deals and actually bringing money and capital into these projects because 
it doesn't matter. As I said, I, that was my pessimist side saying, hey, it's still going to be too many condos launching at the same time and too much happening. But at the same time, I know for a fact that there's going to be more people coming in. There's mm. going to be more need for housing. It just has to be structured properly so it doesn't become mayhem, right? So we do not want to have the industry going crazy again with all the brokers I work with and all the agents. Forgive me for saying this, but I think that was something that we brought on our, on our industry ourselves. You know, when we do multiple offers in a fashion that we did it before, for. It kind of created this illusion and that illusion of the market, you know, the price is going up and you got to get into the game and you got to buy this property. It just created this problem in this bubble, as everybody was calling it. So I, I say we got we to gotta have some systemic changes to the way we sell these units, the way we, um, you know, the cooling off period. Well, not, we someone was saying, I can't remember if it was on air or not. I've had so many conversations about real estate over the last couple of yeah. days, but someone was saying that, you know, Normal times, you know, whether that was in the 2000s or even after the financial crisis leading up to like 15, 16, 17, it took a year to sell a project. That yes. was normal. Exactly. And then we kind of got spoiled where you'd do this launch at a golf course and you'd sell it on a weekend. And that it almost like people thought to started to believe that that was how it was supposed to work. And I think that was just a false expectation. And I don't know if you guys agree with me, but I think we have become an industry where not only our parties are extravagant, we are, our launches are now crazy. Like the way we launch projects right now is very different than we did four or five years ago, right? There's a lot of more blow and whistle, as they say, or like there's a lot more to it beyond just selling the units, right? Before, you know, you would hear someone offering like a car when you buy a unit, you were like, oh my God, what are they doing? But now it's like... Again, uh, thanks to our amazing teams on the marketing side, figuring out how we should market these things. But I still think that we need to really get to the core of the problem, sell proper housing, sell it the proper way, and not to create the bubble that's going to end up hurting all of us, right? Who's hurting the most? Yes, developers are hurting, but so is the real estate industry, right? They're not selling any units because nobody's buying the units because of all the things that, you know, not to blame them. There's interest rates, there's all of those things, but the reason inflation went up, I think, can all like it's just like it's all interconnected, like it's interconnected, right? And yes, COVID happened, so it's <laughs> yeah, the big disruptor. Sorry, not our, you know, we're all mindful of that. So you come back on the podcast eighteen months forward. It's been eighteen months since we saw you last. Uh, are we in a better or worse position in terms of trying to deliver affordability? Ah, how am I going to answer that without getting myself? <laughs> <laughs> so. I think we're in the worst place as far as not my projects, but as far as the overall look at how we're looking at housing. You look at every city across Ontario and you can see more people on the street. What is that a confirmation of? A confirmation of the fact that we are lacking in housing and supports that they need in order for them to be able to do what they, you know, to, to survive, right? So I think the problem has gotten worse. Are we able to get our solutions sort of implemented? Yes, we're closer in some municipalities and lagging in some other municipalities. So it's not a universal problem. Some municipalities are really actively pushing things through, care about bringing housing, and some municipalities haven't gotten there yet. And I don't think we can entirely blame them because many of the ones that I'm referring to might have had too many changes that might have stopped them from actually 
pushing the projects through the way they should have. And I think it, it will pick itself up. Um, and I think there's a greater focus on that. But I think the more we hear about it, the more people talk about it, the more the understanding it, it becomes, you know, something available to everyone to figure out how to do affordable housing. Like everybody's running away. Like all the developer partners of mine, I tell them to do affordable housing. Like, oh, okay, okay. Well, don't say that. Don't mention that in front of the counselor. Or we're going to like, we'll just pay. There's a stigma that we created ourselves about affordable housing. When we say affordable housing, people automatically start to think about shelters. Like we're not talking about shelters. We're talking about some of the people we're going to be housing in our projects are nurses, teachers, people that actually make good money. They just can't afford to buy a house. We are giving them housing. So many of the new immigrants that come to Canada, educated new immigrants that come to Canada. Like my mother-in-law is an amazing dermatologist. She just never bothered to go through the system here. And, you know, she keeps on going back home and working and coming back because she can, right? But there are a lot of people that are stuck here and they don't have that opportunity. And they have to go through this crazy process to get accredited in Canada to be able to work. We have a lot of those people coming. So why don't we put that energy towards teaching them new skills. Like, you know, we are focused on skilled trades. You guys tell me if you, we're not going to run into a problem with scarcity of labor in the next couple of years. And it's funny because there's different, different ways of looking at it. I was talking to someone and they were like, I was saying, oh my God, the average age of a crane operator is 60. And they're like, oh, don't worry. Soon we're not even going to need crane operators because there's going to be someone sitting in their room with a, with a computer and nobody needs to go all the way up there to operate a crane. But up until we get there, you still need those crane operators. And if they're all average age is 60, then that means many of them are going to be out of the business. The same thing you're seeing, like the, most of the immigrants that are coming to Canada, this is something I heard from um, um, someone that was doing some research for us and he was from India. So he was telling me, they're bringing 40% India, uh, from uh, immigrants from India in Canada. And our culture doesn't like skills trades. We don't think of it as, you know, a proper job you know, accounting, nursing, um, doctors, and things like that are good opportunities that we'll look for. But that education has to come in. So there has to be some sort of a system that is put in place where you bring in skill trades, right? So a lot alignment between yeah, the, the skills 100%. that are coming in and what we need. Well, Michael, exactly. Michael Broccolini was in the podcast yesterday and he mentioned that less than 2% of all the immigrants coming in would fall in the skills trades category. Yes, and uh, how many of them are we training here so that even when they get here and they don't have the skills, we can actually get them into the labor market. Mm -hmm. You can't. Yeah, it's not day one. They don't go no. from the airport to the job site. No, it's still. Yeah, it's no. sitting around for years waiting. Exactly. You know how many work visas are being issued these days? What are they being issued? On absolutely everything except the things that we need, which are skilled trades to tackle the crisis of housing, which is one of the biggest problems that we're having. We can't say bring in doctors because we know it's going to take five years for them to actually become doctors in Canada. We can't say bring nurses because it's going to take another couple of years for them to actually be able to to work here. But skilled trade can start working from day one. And that's something that we're missing. We need to bring them in. And even after we bring them in, one of the things we're doing in our projects, and we have um, signed agreements with a couple of the colleges in, in, in Ontario, is that we are focusing on, on providing about 10,000 square feet of, of educational facilities, so skilled trades, that we're, we're, we're going to be, because we are, we are expecting an influx of um, new immigrants in our projects, we're saying, hey, Let's put the tools at their hands and say, guys, you can go here and become an electrician. It's not as difficult as you think. Or you can become a carpenter, a finished carpenter. Or you can be absolutely anything that we might need. So we'll educate you. This is our way of creating workforce housing. You live in this project. You learn from us. And then we'll put you back into our projects. So it's like 
the best way to do it, right? So that's something that we are heavily invested in, but it should be done through the proper government channels because we are a very small entity trying to push this through. And if it's not done through the government where they see the need to bring in skilled trades, as you said, nobody's going to come off the plane and go and start working on a, on a, on a um, job site because they just can't unless they're forced to. And then if they are, then they'll be, they don't have the skills. If somebody wants to reach out to get a hold of you regarding the nonprofit initiatives, where do they reach you? I'm always available through LinkedIn. I think my phone number is probably on all of the business cards I've given out um, and my email address. And everybody in my office is absolutely interested to speak to anyone who's interested in working within the affordable housing world or to help us bring in more or partner with us, right, from the non-for-profit sector or from the private sector where they have funding and money. Before we let you go, we talked about it at length on the last episode, but for those that didn't hear it, maybe just talk quickly about the success of Rena. Oh, wow. You should see how it looks now. <laughs> Drive by and you'll see we're on, you know, we're on the sixth floor and it's beautiful. And I think besides the fact of the project being a building that's being erected and built in Canada, I think the, what it did is it sort of, again, it just put the woman in the spotlight. Just explain what it is, suppose those that don't know. So it's um, the first all-female development in Canada. So we started the project with me and Taya Cook. And what we did is we hired all the females in the industry that we knew of and we were working with already and some that we did not know. And we brought them all together and we are building a condo in Etobicoke in, in Toronto. And um, it worked out beautifully, uh, you know, against... Um, many of the negative comments and the positive comments that we got, but it also brought a, a, a lot of publicity to the project, which in some ways I always say so unfortunate that just because the project is all female, it should get this much publicity. That kind of goes back to the core of the problem, that there's so much lack of female representations in our industry that this project got so much publicity. We don't mind it. We loved it. It was, you know, great. Getting into New York Times, like I, seeing my own picture in New York Times, I, I, oh, come on, I never thought about it. Or Oprah Magazine. Although I was extremely pregnant and <laughs> not the best picture, but it's just the fact that it happened was amazing. But then, you know, if you get into New York Times, there is a reason, right? And you can see that it's um, it's something that's affecting a lot of women in this industry. And I think it needs to be addressed. And I can tell you, we haven't solved that problem either. That problem still exists and uh, it needs to be dealt with. And we need more female representations in this industry. Look at the forum here. And I keep on saying that to everyone. Look in, at the room and the number of men that are standing around and the number of women that are, you know, representing different development companies in Canada within the room that we're, sit that we're sitting in here today. So the, the only counterpoint I would make to that is uh, this tends to be more senior people. If you walk around an office and look at the people under 30, is more balanced. I'm not even uh, gonna. I'm not even we'll gonna. Come on over to our office. No, we'll, uh, but I'll tell you. The floor. Yes, unfortunately, uh, yeah. there's yeah. a lot of support. Oh, like, oh, there's a, there's a million miles to go. Do well, I wouldn't say support staff. Yeah. They're just they're just younger generation making their way through the ranks. Like I think yeah. in, in 10, 15 years from now, I think that that, that proportion changes as the company starts paying yeah. for it. Yeah, as the as the older generations start to move, well, start to retire. Of, but there's a lot of women in the senior roles that can be here that I know of and that can be put into the roles that. They're not filling in now. So yes, I hear you. And this is a great news anyways, hearing that this is happening. But I still think that overall, we still need to work on them. So. Agreed. It needs constant attention. Let's put 100%. it that way. Yeah. One final question. It's just, it's just a yes or a no. We are, we've gone way over time here. And I apologize for okay. keeping here too long. Uh, in 20 years, are we in a better place than where we are now? Yes or no? Only with interventions, yes. 
Okay. Without it, no. Okay. You said Good. one answer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was close. It was <laughs> uh, we are out of time, unfortunately. Um, like to thank First National for powering the podcast. Uh, thank you to Dow Vukovic, ML Emporio Properties Limited, and Turner and Townsend for sponsoring the speaker video series here at the Toronto Real Estate Forum. And thank you again, Sherry, for coming on. Really Thanks appreciate it. I appreciate being here. Thank you. We'll keep on having you back until we hit the 20 year mark and we'll find out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. Of course. Look forward to that. All right. Welcome to the real estate podcast after show where Adam and I talk about the conversation we just had with Sherry Lajani. Great energy. Every time we have her on, a lot of things on the go, a lot of things that she cares a lot about. She's trying to take a lot of initiative. Like just leading. Like she's just using this, you know, this frustration, right? She's just, why can't people just keep up with me? She doesn't want to wait for other people who also want to solve this. Doesn't even wait for them to try and do it because they're moving too slow and she's going to move quicker. I mean, it's, it is, of course, a huge part of this is uh, going to come from the government, not known for a fast response time. So for somebody like that that's trying to run through this, it's, it's got to be very frustrating. I mean, it was, it's funny. You could even sense in the, the question, you know, what's the number one barrier? And she basically said, well, there's five things tied for first place, you know, for, for barriers. It's got to be the highs and lows of trying to solve affordability would be would be dramatic. Um, and I imagine there's a lot of very frustrating days as part of her work day, because this is a problem that, you know, as an industry, we'd not be able to solve it. Government's not be able to solve it. And you're trying to solve it. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time with CMHC. And she mentioned just the challenges of five different products within CMHC and get them all aligned. And, and I recognize, you know, that, that complexity. My familiarity with CMHC is, you know, probably very similar to her experience where you've got people that are, very motivated that are working very hard to come to the same goal, but they have their own bureaucracies and, you know, so they might be equally as frustrated. And I'm sure that goes true for all levels of government, with all the people that she's dealing with on every project and all the nonprofits, they all know that it has to be done quickly, that it has to get out. But when they turn around to go and move the dial and make whatever happen happen, it's just, there's so many layers and so many considerations and so many influences. It, it's just, it's, well, it's, I mean, it's a real, it's a real challenge. I don't know how you fix it, right? Like it's, you need a dictator to kind of say, you should do this and everyone just follow yeah. through, right? Like, I mean, that's one of those things, the question we ask all the time to people and if you have a magic wand, what you do, and you get some great answers, but nobody has a magic wand. So maybe it's, <laughs> yeah, well, maybe there it's not is. a great question. <laughs> maybe the answer is, well, if I, I need an actual magic wand <laughs> to, you know, cut through the inertia of giant governments and I need, you know, and public opinion and, you know, limited resources and yeah. <laughs> literally a magic wand is the answer we've come to at the end of all this. <laughs> I mean, even, you know, we talked about, you know, contradictory policies. These all be the same goal is we want to provide either more housing, affordable housing, and you'll see contradictory policies or, or outcomes from that. Like it's even that is when people are aligned, they're not truly aligned. You know, like, uh, as, as a quick and dirty example that, you know, Aaron's aware of, but maybe the listener isn't, you know, DC deferrals, like long-term DC deferrals are fantastic other than you can't securitize loans with CMHC with that. So what does that mean? You get a 10-year deferral on a construction project for your DCs. You can really only defer them through the construction period. Then you go to term out, you have to pay them. So your 10-year deferral turned into a three-year deferral and the benefit you derive from that, now you've only received a third of it. You know, it's... Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's the complication with all yeah. these things. I, so I can I can just feel Sherry's frustration when she's trying to tie all this stuff together, and everybody's got good ideas, but they're not all perfectly aligned. And it's like herding cats to get them all aligned. I, yeah. You know that that phrase "herding cats" is kind of means it's impossible, right? Like yeah. it actually is really difficult to put a whole bunch of cats in the same room. I guess yeah. I mean like or at least are positive indicators. There is not a politician of any party at any level of government 
who does not have to make housing affordability a big part of their platform. It's not just a big city problem. It's Canada wide. It is the forefront of conversation, but the trying to change that to all the, all the reasons why it's difficult to move into a, a newer, better, more affordable, more housed world. Staggering. 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 Yeah. And we're talking about, you know, are we better in two years? I mean, I joked in the podcast about 20 years. I mean, 50 years. Will this happen in our careers? Who knows? I hope so. I don't want to be talking about this for 50 years. <laughs> yeah. You and I gray haired going on about affordability. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for the, uh, the Sherry Larjani after show. Thanks everybody for listening to the end. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.